We can understand Dharma practice as being a path of opening. It's an opening of our bodies. And as you've seen, we start with the sense of the body as being something very solid. Then with increased mindfulness, we experience it as particular sensations. And with further refinement of mindfulness, begin to experience the body as a flow of energy, often without any form at all. Dharma practice is an opening of our sense doors. You've probably noticed, at least at times, how our sense perceptions get very refined in the stillness of a retreat. It's as if we see things with a certain clarity that's missing in our normal lives or hear things, or smell, or taste. It's an opening of our emotions. Begin to experience in a fuller and more intimate, and perhaps deeper way, the range of our emotions. Of love, and gratitude, and joy, and anger, and envy, or pride calm, peace, sadness, the whole range, different mental qualities, mental states. It's an opening of our memories. You've probably had the experience sometimes of sitting and thinking of things, having memories of things you didn't even know you were carrying, didn't even know you remembered. It's like a whole system is opening up. And the practice is not about reaching for something. It's not about having a particular experience, but rather a settling back. It's not a reaching out, it's a settling back. And realizing with increasing clarity and wisdom the essentially empty nature of this whole unfolding mind-body process the insubstantial nature. Phrase that Munindraji used, my first teacher, used so often, kind of has just stayed in my mind all these years. Over and over again he would say, empty phenomena rolling on. That's all that's happening. It's empty phenomena rolling on. But there's one very strongly conditioned habit of mind, tendency of mind. And it's one that we habitually identify with that tends to freeze our experience of this flow of change. Something like a deer being frozen in headlights. Our mind freezes when this particular mind state arises. And this is the very deeply conditioned emotion or mental state of fear. So tonight I'd like to speak about fear. How it becomes conditioned in our minds, how we can work with it, and how we can transform fear, our experience of it, into an experience of freedom. As you've seen in you know, these weeks of practice, as we continue sitting and walking and opening, we come to the edges, we come to certain boundaries of what's comfortable for us, what's in our comfort zone of experience. And it's precisely at the boundaries at the edges, when we're right at the limit of what we can comfortably be with, it's just at that boundary or that edge that fears, both small ones and large ones, begin to reveal themselves. It might be fear of pain. You know, we get to a certain edge of discomfort. We're okay with so much, and then it gets a little more intense, and it can trigger fear. 
There can be fear of different emotional or psychological states. A certain quality of energy. We're okay when it's reasonably moderate, but it starts to get more intense, more intense. And at a certain boundary, fear can arise within us. What's going to happen? There's often fear of change. Which is really another word for loss. In every change, there's a loss. And that sometimes triggers fear. There's sometimes fear of things not changing. You know, we think, this will never change, and we become afraid of that. There's fear of unknown, fear of uncertainty, fear of death. These are major, major elements in our lives. The problem that arises, and why we need to learn how to work with this fear, is that all of these experiences of pain, of intensity of energy, of strong emotion, you know, of unpleasant emotions, of change, of loss, of death, that all of these things are true. They are actually part of our life experience. And so if we really want to walk on this path of being free in our lives, it's essential, it's vital that we understand all of these phenomena, how it is that they limit us, at what point they bring up fear, and then how to work with the fear so that we don't become frozen in it. First, we need to see what it is we're afraid of. We really need to look very directly in our experience. What is it that brings up fear for each one of us? And it will be different for each of us. And then we need to explore the possibilities of going beyond those limits. Okay, we reach that edge, we reach that boundary, fear arises. At that point, how can we work with it? So that we're not limited, we're not bound. So the first thing is we want to see directly, we need to see what it is we're afraid of. And second, we want to look at the nature of fear itself. What is fear as a mind state, as an emotion? The Dharma is the totality of our experience. There's nothing outside of the Dharma. The Dharma is everything we experience in the mind and body. And the great implication of that is that everything is workable. No matter how difficult something is, we actually can come to an understanding. We can bring awareness to it. So what are some of the things that limit us in our lives? Where does fear arise? And I'll go through just a few of the major themes you know, that are common to most of us in one way or another. Most of us have some fear of pain, fear of discomfort. We don't like it. It's unpleasant. And we're deeply conditioned to avoid unpleasantness. Very few of us would kind of go out on the town looking for suffering. You know, it's not what we're inclined to do. We're inclined to avoid pain, which is not always a bad thing, as I will suggest later. But it does limit us in certain ways. So we want to understand what's going on there, what's happening in our conditioning our impatience with discomfort, our unwillingness to be with it. But just as an experiment in your practice, 
Notice the very small shifts of position you make. You know, you're sitting and you're quite comfortable, and then you just straighten a little bit, or you move a little bit. It's not that, you know, you're in excruciating pain. That's another situation. This is just, there's a little bit of discomfort that arises, and our initial, our immediate, our spontaneous reaction, how can I alleviate it through some movement? There's a very interesting principle in our understanding of the Dharma, and one which we hardly pay attention to. And that is the principle that movement masks dukkha. Movement masks suffering. And what the Buddha meant by that is that when we pay attention, we see that many movements through the day, in fact, almost all of them, are done in order to avoid feeling a certain kind of discomfort or pain. So I would suggest just watching through the day, why do you ever move? When you move, see if you can kind of recall this, and just take a look, what's, what's motivating you to move? You know, in the sitting it may be shifting to alleviate a discomfort. Okay, I'll stand. How long can you stand before you want to shift position? You, you need to walk. Why not walk all day? You get tired. You want to sit. You know, we go to lunch. Why? To alleviate the, the discomfort of hunger. Fine, at night, go to sleep. Find a totally comfortable position. You know, I did this once. Actually, it wasn't at night. It was during the day. I was so fed up with this constant moving just to mask dukkha. So I thought, oh, I got this big piece of foam. It was a foam mattress and thick. And I thought, I'm going to just lie flat on my back, nothing crossed, and then I'll really be able to meditate. <laughs> well, it was really interesting. I was just lying there no obvious cause for discomfort to arise. I don't remember exactly how long it took, but it wasn't that long. You know, it was an hour or an hour and a half maybe, and just lying on this soft piece of foam, things started to hurt. It's in the nature of the body. This is part of the truth of understanding dukkha. It's kind of a striking yogi mindset with regard to insight, and I think we all share this. We would all like to have insight into suffering without actually suffering. (laughs) But it doesn't quite work like that. The insight into dukkha, into the suffering, unsatisfying nature of things, comes through our direct experience of that. Well, if we see it in this way, if we frame it in this way, it actually creates a little more willingness as we're experiencing discomfort or pain in some way, And we frame it, yes, this is insight into dukkha, to the first noble truth. So it gives us a little more courage, you know, just to be with it and to feel it and to experience it rather than to continually mask it or avoid it. So movement masks dukkha. Sometimes the fear of pain manifests not through avoidance and movement, but we feel ourselves contracting. You know, when there's some pain coming up, and and often you can feel the whole mind-body system contracts as a way of keeping the pain out of not feeling it. And so then our sittings become one of endurance. It's not really mindfulness. We're just sitting enduring the pain. When you're feeling that, notice the contraction involved in that. 
Now, sometimes we're bargaining with pain. You know, I'll watch you if you'll go away. Well, that also is out of fear. That's a fear state. And sometimes we get caught in self-pity about the pain. One habit of mind that is really useless and very prevalent is fear of anticipated pain. You know, so we'll be sitting and we may feel a little something and then the mind will start thinking, what's this going to be like during the next hour? And we imagine an hour's worth of pain in the moment. Well, of course, it's impossible to endure an hour's worth of pain in a moment. So we just anticipate and we think and create this whole idea and become afraid of that and then move away. Now, it's not only in sitting that we do this. These are patterns that play themselves out in our lives. How much fear arises because of anticipation of what something will be like. Some years ago, I was teaching out at uh, Vallecitos. It's a wilderness, a ranch in New Mexico. I was teaching this course, and on the last day, we were going on a hike by the river, and I slipped. It had rained. I slipped on one of the rocks and hyperextended my knee. And it was kind of okay, but I knew something was a little not that great. I came back, and that night I gave the Dharma talk, and I had the intuition, give the talk sitting in a chair. You know, but I didn't listen to it. And so I just sat cross-legged. It was not a good combination. The hyperextension from you know, this, the accident and then sitting cross-legged. I couldn't get up at the, at the end of the sitting. It's like I couldn't put any weight. I had to be carried back you know, to my cabin, which was a little embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from that, it was interesting just watching what my mind did with that. Yeah, and in a way, I was grateful that it was in the context of a retreat because I was really you know, quite attentive in mindfulness. And I saw my mind, the tendency of the mind, to start projecting what the whole rest of the summer was going to be like. And I had a busy schedule and a lot of traveling. And I was thinking, how am I going to do this? I can't walk. And as soon as I saw my mind going down that and all the fear involved in you know, how my life was going to be that summer, realizing that all of that was just in my imagination. It wasn't what was happening in the moment. And in seeing it and in coming back and just being with the pain and the discomfort and then doing whatever I could do, the summer turned out fine. And it was just a good example of how when we're not aware and let our minds run unchecked, we can create all of these scenarios which call up fear for ourselves, get lost in them, and then be living out of that place of fear. It's not, it's not helpful. Working directly in the moment with pain that arises or discomfort can be a very powerful aid in the practice. Why? Because when there's strong pain, your mind is not wandering. It's a very strong object of concentration. And if we can learn to be with it in a balanced way, where we're not contracted, and we're not reactive in fear, but we're just opening, people get enlightened observing the pain because it is such a predominant, strong object. It takes learning how to be with it, seeing what it's about. As we open to the pain free of fear, as we learn how to become accepting. Yes, this is okay, let me feel it, even though it's painful. Out of that experience of dukkha, the suffering of the pain, we also begin to get 
a deeper and more subtle appreciation or understanding of selflessness or anatta. Because one of the meanings of the Pali word anatta, which is usually translated as selflessness, it also means the understanding of the ungovernableness of experience. That things are not happening according to our wishes. We can't just say, let there be bliss. Let there not be pain. Let my mind always be happy. It doesn't work like that. Things are arising out of the appropriate and lawful causes and conditions. When the conditions are there for pain to arise, it will arise. It's not subject to our will. Well, this is a very powerful insight when we really get it. We give up or let go of this pretense of being in control. And when we let go of that pretense of being in control, we actually can relax back into this flow of empty phenomena, free of fear. This is just how it is in this moment. You might ask, well, why? Why bother? So what if we see the ungovernableness? You know, why, should I, why should I just sit here with this pain? Well, in this situation, you might be able to change your posture, move your knee, and the pain goes away. But what about those situations in life which come to all of us at different times? Through illness, through decay of the body, you know, in the dying process? What happens at those times when we can't just change position and the pain goes away? It's at those times when the work we have done here will really bear fruit. If we've learned to be open and somewhat fearless, okay, this is okay, this is the lawful happening of things, we actually strengthen our ability to be with discomfort, to be with pain, to be with difficulty, when there's nothing we can do about it. When it is just part of the anatta, the ungovernableness of what's happening. And so I see these situations here on retreat as being very good training for dying. Not only for dying, but for for really difficult times in our lives. When you read the suttas, the discourses, many times the Buddha will be speaking to people who are very ill or dying, and of course the metaphors they use to describe the physical state of very intense, you know, of their body being racked by winds, and it goes on and on in a very graphic way. And the Buddha is just so perfect in his response, of course. And he said, even though your body may be filled with pain, racked with pain, can you keep your mind calm and peaceful? that that is your practice. Just showing the possibility of being fearless in those situations. So on retreat, we can, don't have to start this training with racking pain. Let's start with just small discomforts. You know, and say, okay, can I open to this? Not withdraw out of fear really come to our boundary, come to our limit, and extend. We come to that boundary and extend and extend. And there's a tremendous strength that begins to develop. One more subtle training in this regard. Not only the growing ability to open to and feel the sensations that are there, even when they're painful or unpleasant, 
But at those times, it's also possible to turn the attention back to the knowing itself. What is it that's knowing the pain? What is the nature of the awareness that's knowing the discomfort? Now, something I've been speaking to some of you in interviews, thinking of awareness as being like an open window, where the window is open. That's that's that empty nature of mind. And all experience appears, you could say, in the open window or through the open window. Is the space of openness altered or touched in any way by what appears in it? No. It's just open. It's like empty space. The nature of awareness, the nature of our minds, is like that open window. It's just openness. It's not touched. It's not affected. It's not altered by the particular sensations that are arising. When we stay in the recognition of the openness. So this is just another element, another dimension to begin to understand of our experience. There's one line from the suttas which kind of jumped out at me a little bit. He said, the Buddha said, I will not cling to this world and my consciousness will not be dependent on it. Then the footnote about what does it mean, consciousness not being dependent on what's arising? He said, consciousness is not dependent when there is no craving, no clinging to things, and no wrong view things being self. So it's that sense of consciousness not being dependent on what's arising. Like the open window, the open space is not dependent. In order to work skillfully with pain and discomfort, it's helpful to distinguish different kinds because some pain is a danger signal. You know, if you put your hand in fire, it's going to, the pain is going to be telling you something, like take it out. And just to stand there burning, 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 uh, maybe if you're, you know, in the Indian sadhu, you might do it as an ascetic discipline, but it's really not required. (laughs) And so in that sense, there is a wholesome kind of fear. And the Dalai Lama spoke of this. He spoke of wholesome fear. It's not the fear of aversion. It's not the fear of contraction. It's, It's really an aspect of wisdom. If you go to the beach and you see a sign, danger, a strong undertow, There's an aspect, yeah, there's, there's a wholesome, a healthy fear of that danger, and so we refrain from going in. And so we want to understand when pain is a danger signal, and then take the appropriate response. Sometimes pain is just accumulated tensions in the body unwinding. You know, we come with so much accumulated It's just a process of letting go. And in that process of letting go of the tension, often we feel it as discomfort. Sometimes pain is reliving old traumas to the body. Accidents we've had or different traumas in the silence, in the space of sitting, that can be relived. So that's another cause of pain to arise. And there are also simply stages of insight where dukkha predominates. And it's just a function of being in that particular phase. And some of those phases come even after the experience is one of really blissful feelings. And so very often people, they're open, they're spacious, it's 
easy, it's blissful, and then they go into a dukkha stage and they think they've done something wrong. Or they're making a mistake. And it's not that. It's like this is insight into dukkha. And at that time, it's actually feeling the discomfort. And those stages are often in a more advanced place. So it's important not to judge what's going on in terms of pleasure and pain. Because that's not the measure. The measure is always how are we relating? Are we open? Can we we be with it without fear? And practicing that. That's the realm of the physical, physical sensations, physical pain, and the fear that comes up, and the practice of opening gradually. There might also be fear of certain images, certain memories arising in the mind. Now, they might be really painful memories of specific events, and they come up and we have a fear reaction. Or sometimes they may be archetypal representation, archetypal imagery in the mind of very unwholesome states, of like the archetypal imagery of hatred, you know, or envy, or jealousy. And the images that come to mind, we might not relate to in our own personal history, but they may be very frightful. You know, in the Tibetan, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, talks about that intermediate time after death called the bardo. And it's said that part of that time you know, in the bardo is where these very frightful images come. And they're really just archetypal representations. And generally, for people untrained, they get very frightened of that. You know, which is, I guess, not the best response in the bardo. So I had an idea to actually build a bardo machine. (laughs) And I had this idea to do one of these virtual reality things, you know, with goggles and earphones, and to to program it as authentically as possible, you know, to really get some lamas who who really knew the stuff. And so we could sit and practice being with (laughs) the experience of the bardo and learning, practicing, Okay, it's just seeing, it's just imagery, it's just hearing, whatever it is, however frightening it is. Well, till I get that going, (laughs) we have the three-month course instead. (laughs) So this is like a virtual bardo machine. You know, as you're sitting in different imagery or memories, especially the painful or difficult ones that come up, the great practice is remember, it's just an image. It's just seeing. Can we practice understanding the essential emptiness of it? Now, when Munindraji was visiting here, this was you know, many years ago, in the 70s and early 80s, one of the strangest things I thought at the time that he did was he liked us to get just the worst horror movies, you know, for, to play in the VCR. Like, in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, things that in a million years I wouldn't watch. But he kept on saying, I'm testing my mind. I just want to see if I can keep this awareness. It's only a movie. There's nothing really happening at all. You know, but the tendency of our mind to get so caught up by what we see and to have all kinds of reactions when really nothing is going on. It's just an empty image. So we might have a late show tonight. <laughs> okay, fear arises, can arise with, with pain or discomfort. It can arise with frightful or frightening images or memories. Fear arises with a whole range of different painful emotions. You know, it's that shadow side, those emotions that 
we don't recognize very easily, that are unacceptable, that are too painful to be with and to open to. And we just get a little hint of them, and it can trigger fear. It might be emotions of unworthiness. They're painful. It's painful to feel that. Or jealousy, or abandonment, or failure, whatever. We each have our own. But as long as there's fear and non-acceptance of these emotions, what that leads to is a tremendous insecurity and fragmentation. Because we're closing off, we're afraid of being with a part of ourselves. And so there's this tremendous inner split. And this inner pressure to keep certain feelings away, certain emotions away because they're too painful and there's fear of feeling them. Out of that inner pressure we create, we construct a persona, a self-image, which we present to ourselves and to the world. And then we're continually looking for validation for this persona you know, in the eyes of other people. And it's not really what's there. It's just a construct which we have to devote a lot of energy in our lives to sustaining. We do this in so many ways in our relationships. I saw this very clearly in working with Upandita on retreat. And, you know, you've heard countless Upandita stories. This is very demanding, strict teacher, and it was very uh, sort of archetypal authority figure. You know, and I was just watching my mind regress every time I went in for an interview. And what I saw was it was so incredibly difficult for me to just be completely simple in my reporting what was happening because I had this whole thing going on very misguided you know, of wanting to, cre- wanting to present the persona through my experience you know, to elicit approval. You know, if I'm this way or I say this thing then he'll approve. But the whole reference point for that was what in my mind I thought would be acceptable. It took quite a while, and it was very uh, stressful. You know, I hated going in for interviews. One time I told him, you know, I was coming into an interview is like going to the dentist. <laughs> so that was, that was the feeling I had waiting outside the door. But finally, there was a kind of a breakthrough. Because at one point I went in and I was reporting my experience and he just started listing all of the defilements that were going on in my mind in what I thought was just a straightforward report. And as he was going through this whole list of defilements, something broke in me and I just started to laugh. I mean, it was, the whole thing was, just became so funny. And that was a turning point, because as soon as I could see it in that way and not have that reflection be a comment on my constructed persona, but it was just, this is what was going on, this was what was in the mind. I actually became really interested in seeing the defilements. It's much more interesting to see them and work with them than to live defensively out of fear of acknowledging them. Can we just open to the whole range of who we are? There's a nice poem by Rilke, which captures something about this. He says, I want to be with those who know secret things or else alone. I want to unfold. I don't want to stay folded anywhere. Because where I am folded, there I am a lie. And it's just that image of that willingness to unfold, to see every part of ourselves non-defensively, without fear. Because it is all empty phenomena. Well, this this is part of our growing acceptance of ourselves in our practice.
Manindraji used one phrase so many times that it really is just, you know, feels like it's in every pore. Over and over again, he would say, be simple and easy. Just be simple and easy about things. Something comes up, be simple and easy. You know, it's discomfort, it's pain, it's a frightening image, it's a strong emotion. He said, be simple, not a simpleton. But be simple and easy. And just as a general reminder to us in the practice, for me it was really helpful. You know, as an antidote to getting all caught up in self-judgment and fear about what was arising. It's essential that we do this. It's essential that we open to the full range of our emotions because if we don't, we either are denying and suppressing them, which is not very healthy, or we are habitually acting them out. It's only if we can open in that fearless way, let me feel this, whatever it is, in that openness, in that fearlessness, then the appropriate response can happen. One word of caution with this. Sometimes people hear, hear this and the importance of opening to the full range of our emotions and think the idea then is to go looking and digging and if you're not feeling intense emotions, the practice is not going well. And It's not that. Maybe you're in a place of great calm and peace and silence. That's fine. It's just when they come, when they arise in their own time, whenever they do, that's the time to see if we can be with it. Can I open to this feeling, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's painful? It's instructive to look at our lives and to see how often fear of certain feelings conditions the way we live. It's an important important process that's happening. Now how much of what we do as individuals and as a culture, how much of what we do arises out of fear of boredom. I mean, the whole, <laughs> a ten zillion dollar entertainment industry, you know, is, feeds that fear of boredom. How much of what we do strengthens attachment in order to avoid the feeling of loss or the feeling of loneliness. Now we can construct whole lives with these strong bonds of attachment in trying to protect ourselves from a feeling of loss. It's much easier just to feel the feeling. It's not that we don't engage in relationship, that's fine, but what's the motive? Is it out of fear or is it out of love? Two very different results. How much of our lives, in how much of our lives do we avoid taking risks of really just putting ourselves out in some situation out of fear of failure? It's always the fear of feeling certain things that becomes a limitation for us in our lives. The great power of the practice of the Dharma and what you can learn so deeply you know, in this sustained time here, over and over again through observation, is the essentially empty, insubstantial nature of all of these emotions. Because our tendency is, through fear and through clinging, to solidify them, we create this 
this amazingly solid reality for ourselves. And yet in the openness of awareness, of sustained attention, and we just see the waves of emotion, both pleasant and unpleasant, they come, they arise, they pass away. They're like clouds forming and dissolving in the empty open sky of the mind. When we see that over and over and over again, we get less caught and we're less afraid of whatever emotion may arise. Sort of a, a, an image, or it's almost a technique, which is appropriate to this time of year in working with difficult emotions. Practice seeing each of the emotions that come where normally you would get quite caught up in them in one way or another, out of fear or identification with them. Try seeing them all as kids coming to your door in Halloween costumes. You know, when a pirate comes or a witch comes or a ghost comes, do you get frightened? No. (laughs) You know, it's just a kid in a costume. You give it some candy. Well, think of all the emotions that come as kids in Halloween costumes. There's the angry witch. <laughs> you know, there's the frightening ghoul, whatever. Because they are as insubstantial when we see them with wisdom. It's not that... It's through the opening to them in this way and the feeling of them that we see into their empty nature. And it's when we're resisting them out of fear, that's what solidifies, and that's where we get into struggle. So enjoy this Halloween time of your mind. Fear arises when we reach the boundaries or the limits of painful sensations in the body. Arises with certain images or memories, can arise with painful emotions, difficult, intense emotions. You can see that reaction of fear. This fear of impermanence, fear of loss, fear of change, fear of death. We're holding on to this mind body or different aspects of it so tightly out of fear. of loss. And so we live in the delusion and we act on the delusion of this mind-body being permanent, being self. It's not opening and acknowledging to the momentary arising and passing of all phenomena. Whatever has the nature to arise, whatever has come into being, And this is one of the basic fundamental tenets of the Buddha's understanding and enlightenment. It's so simple and so powerful. Whatever has the nature to come into being has within it, inherent within it, the nature to deconstruct. The decay, the demise, the ending, the deconstruction, the dissolution of things is not a mistake. It is in the nature of all conditioned things. We need to hear that over and over again because our strong conditioning is to try to hold on in one way or another. Hold on to the body, hold on to pleasant experiences, hold on to pleasant states trying to recreate past pleasant experiences. You know, how many times in, in your practice here have you tried to recreate a past pleasant sitting? You, know, you had a sitting and it was open and easy and light and you felt great, and then the next one, just really struggling. And then that tendency in the mind, well, what can I do to get that back? That's not acknowledging the changing, decaying, dissolving nature of experience. It's like dragging a corpse around. 
It's dead. (laughs) Bury it. (laughs) It's very hard to do. The conditioning is so strong. So we really need to see. We need to see what keeps us from opening just to the truth. The very evident truth when we stop and look that it's all changing, that it's all dissolving, it's all deconstructing. As another experiment in practice, take some minutes in a sitting, you know, a few minutes, five minutes, ten minutes. And practice non-doing. So don't do anything. So you're not trying to be with the breath, you're not noting, you're not... You're just sitting not doing anything. And in the space of non-doing, see what happens. I'll give you a clue. Everything's going to come and go. Whatever it is, sounds or sensations, or the breath, or thoughts, or images, there'll be a flow of experience. There's nothing you have to do to suck experience in, and there's nothing you have to do to push experience out. So why don't we stop trying to be a vacuum cleaner? You know, Just looking for the next hit that we want to pull in, or, I don't know, I don't know what the opposite of a vacuum, a snowblower. (laughs) We don't have to be pushing things out. It's just sitting there and being with this flow, this ceaseless flow of empty phenomena rolling on. But of course, as we all know, the mind then jumps in. I like this, I don't like this, I want this to happen, I don't want this to happen. And we just mess up the whole thing. So maybe instead of your kind of internal instruction, which we hear a lot, you know, of letting things go, just let it go. Because that can, contains within it a hint of something to do. You know, oh, there's something here and I have to do something to let it go. Instead of that, instead of let it go, maybe use the phrase just let it flow. Just let it flow. There's nothing to do. This is for a few minutes. And see if you can just have that sense of the ease and the fearlessness where there's no fear of change. There's no fear of losing things. There's no fear of things disappearing. It's just non-doing in that flow of phenomena. This talk may go over a few minutes. So a chance to watch some fear rise. (laughs) Oh no! Probably most in my colleagues. <laughs> well, just to put it in perspective, Munindraji once started a talk at two in the afternoon and he ended at ten at night. <laughs> he kept talking till the last person had left. <laughs> So this won't be that bad. (laughs) I just want to talk a little bit about one deeply rooted manifestation of fear of change, which is in most people, and that's the fear of death. it's, It's a very deeply rooted fear because of our attachments. And in our culture, it's so uh, it's relatively unacceptable to be going around talking about death. You know, it's not what you really do at cocktail parties or whatever kind of parties. 
your go-to. And yet the Buddha said, we really should reflect on death every day. You know, it's something that not only do we not want to avoid it, we actually want to bring it into our consciousness. The fact that this body is going to die. So it becomes a very present reality because it's true. This is what's going to happen. When we do reflect on the death of ourselves, the death of the people closest to us, it's not morbid. It's not. It's just acknowledging what is true. This is the reality of having taken birth. It's very instructive because it illuminates our strongest attachments. You know, as we really contemplate our own death or the death of people close to us, and we see the fear coming up in us, it's really showing us what our attachments are. And the Buddha highlighted this. He talked about what the conditions were for there to be fear of death and what the conditions were for there to be no fear of death. And after we you know, hear it, it seems like total common sense, but we just don't often spend the time investigating it for ourselves. He said, who fears death? Those people who have strong desire for sense pleasures. You know, whose lives are really driven by that desire. Of course there'll be fear of death. Because it's understood as the end of sense pleasures. People fear death who have strong attachment to the body. Strong identification with the body. It's obvious. If we're really attached to this, there's going to be fear of its demise, of its deconstruction. The Buddha said people have fear of death who haven't done skillful actions in their lives, wholesome actions. And have done a lot of unwholesome things. There's a fear of death that comes. And he said this fear of death when there's no understanding of the Dharma. And where we don't really understand the impermanent, selfless nature of things. And then he went on to say just the converse. People are not afraid of death when there's not this overly strong desire for sense pleasures, and when there's not strong attachment to the body, when we have done many wholesome things, and when there is a deep understanding of the Dharma. Then at the time of the death, there's no fear. So we need to practice these things now. Because if we wait until the time that we're actually dying, it's too late to be training the mind. We talked of different things we might be afraid of. Afraid of pain or discomfort. Afraid of mental imagery. Afraid of really intense, painful emotions. Afraid of change, of seeing change. Afraid of death. The question then is, how do we work with the fear when it does arise, because it will. We'll get to our boundaries, we'll get to our edges of what we're comfortable with, and fear is going to come up. So how can we work with it skillfully? The basic practice for working with fear is recognizing it and accepting it. The fear is okay. It's okay to feel it. And this is the most helpful magic mantra in Vipassana. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. The fear arises, it's okay. Can I open to it? We don't have to be afraid of the fear. And what's so amazing, in that acceptance of the fear we actually allow it to decondition. It's like 
It's a knot untying itself. In the Tibetan terminology, the fear self-liberates in the space of acceptance. I mentioned that I was going to this, teach this uh, contemplative law retreat. It was either last year or the year before. We're having a group discussion in the afternoon, and one of the young law students, very interesting, he said, I need to get angry. You know, when I'm in the adversarial situation, because if I didn't get angry, then I'd feel fear. And I thought, that's interesting. You know, they didn't teach mindfulness in the law school curriculum, and so it just never even occurred to him that it was possible to be accepting of the fear rather than to need anger in order not to feel it. And to see that the acceptance of the fear it's okay when you feel it, is a much more sustaining, strengthening attitude. So we really can work with it in a, in a powerful way. Part of this is letting go of expectations of how our practice should be. You know, if we think that our practice should be proceeding in a particular way, always light and easy and nice emotions, and I'm, you're probably disabused of that idea by now. <laughs> but it's really to see that sometimes the most difficult things are the most useful. This is from Gurdjieff, who was you know, the great teacher. He said, those aspects of yourself which seem to be weaknesses may blossom into the true strength of your practice while the apparent strengths may well be the real weaknesses to overcome. Those aspects in yourself which seem to be weaknesses may be the true strengths of your practice. Fear is a good example of this. Look into the very nature of fear as a mind state. It's just like everything else. It's empty, it's insubstantial, it arises out of causes. See what triggers it. You're going along, going along, and then what is it that triggers the fear? Is it a thought? Is it an image? Is it a moment sensation? If you can catch the trigger point, you see how conditioned the fear is. Less identified with it. I guess the last thing I'll mention in terms of working with fear is just how important the quality of trust and metta is. The Buddha taught metta really as the antidote to fear, where there's just that feeling of openness, of acceptance, of loving-kindness toward the fear itself. It's like how we would be with a frightened child. That's how we want to be with the fear within ourselves. Of course, we need to be careful that it's genuine. Because sometimes there's a pretense of metta. Some years ago, I was visiting a friend out in Western Mass. I was going for a walk on this country road. And by one house, there was a dog barking, kind of aggressively. I got a little fearful, so I started doing metta. Be happy, be happy, be happy. (laughs) He came over and bit me. (laughs) And in retrospect, I realized it wasn't metta at all. (laughs) I mean, it was, the translation of be happy was stay away. (laughs) Which the dog knew what language I was really speaking (laughs) So it's just as we work with the metta, it's really to drop into a place as much as possible of real openness.
I'll just close with some very pragmatic advice from the Dalai Lama. It's just... The question was, how can one work with deep fears? His response was, if you have some fear of pain or suffering, you should examine whether there is anything you can do about it. If you can, there is no need to worry about it. If you cannot do anything, then there's also no need to worry. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for your patience. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.